0: You are listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It is long-form, one-on-one conversations with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. My guest this week was playwright Finesia Farrell, who was one of the very, very few playwrights that really didn't need to put her name on the script after I'd read one script of hers. Um, she had submitted multiple submissions to us through our inaugural playwriting competition. And after I read one Finesse Farrell script, I didn't need to be told it was a Finesse Farrell script. Uh, the next time I read any of her work, um, she just has an incredibly unique voice. Uh, no one else is duplicating that work. <laughs> and it's, uh, a real credit to the time and effort that she has put into perfecting her craft. Um, you can tell how she must have experimented with devices, with storytelling techniques and, um, and how much that's paid off. She writes uh, in a very lyrical poetic way. I found, and in the interview, you'll hear me uh, kind of, throw out that I thought it was somewhat surreal. And I think her phrasing is probably a bit more accurate that it's, it delves into magical realism, which is an incredibly dangerous area to write in. I think it's an incredibly low percentage way of writing scripts. It, there's so much temptation to make it self-indulgent, masturbatory, um, you know, to wander off the path when you're writing scripts like that. And the fact that hers don't, that hers stay incredibly, not just focused, but actually have some misdirection, deliver gut punches, can be um, wrenching in that genre, in that that, uh, writing in that way is a real tribute to her skill as a writer. So that's one thing that makes her voice unique. The other thing, the other quality, is her fascination with her subject matter. The subject matter that seems to Light her up to captivate her the most, at least in the scripts I read. And I think, as she talks about in the interview, is um, the tensions and the dynamic between Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and especially played out in the lens through the lens of gender, but also with a bit of geopolitical, socioeconomic aspects as well. Needless to say, I mean that's a subject. Those are subjects that just aren't going to be covered in the theater. You know, nobody's writing about that. So the fact that that seems to be what has captivated Finesia, um, at least in the work of hers that I've read was incredibly unique and uh, fascinating and eye-opening and engaging. And that is awesome uh, to find somebody that is captivated about subject matter that very few are going to write about or know enough to write about is always uh, thrilling, but then to do it well, is um is really a coup so i was thrilled to be able to sit down and talk with Finesse. i want to say um something about her veteran status uh and by that i mean what is her association with uh the veteran community that obviously made her eligible to submit her work at vet rep so she is the daughter of a military veteran and i'm uh this now doesn't really have to do so much with her but i i mentioned her as a prime example of something I'm seeing more and more of, the more uh, daughters and sons of veterans that I talk to, which is that Finesse knows shockingly little about her father's military history, and that's she's not alone in that. She's, uh, I would say, Exhibit A in that. But she is. Th- th- I'm seeing that as a trend, and it um, it kind of reminds me of why we do what we do at Vet Rep which is that um, for a veteran to live without sharing the experiential wisdom of their military service with their loved ones is um, unfortunate. And I get it. I a hundred percent get it. There could be, and I'm not going to speculate on Phineas father's case. Um, I don't know him and I wouldn't presume to just speculate, but in general, I can imagine reasons why somebody would be reticent about sharing their experience. Um, and it could range from a bunch of things. It could be, um, humility, uh, grace, manners, etiquette. It could be shame. It could be, um, uh, sense of personal insignificance. It can be that ad and do that much. Uh, who am I to, to say this? It could be intimidation, uh, with the accomplishments of others around you. It, it could be a million reasons, And I, and I say that simply to say that whatever those reasons are, I personally do not think those are reasons that should be an obstacle to a veteran finding a way to share whatever it is that they learned from their time in the military. And I don't know, personally, I don't know of anyone whose military experience can be summed up with a shrug of the shoulders. No matter how insignificant on paper their service might be, whether it was short Whether it was boring, whether it was not during a time of war, um, no matter what it was, I don't know anyone that didn't serve in the military without at least a few significant emotional events. And for that, whatever their takeaway was from those emotional events to not be shared with their loved ones is, I think, just a missed opportunity. Um, Again, not shaming anybody, just I think it's a missed opportunity. I sound I realize now saying this out loud, it sounds like I'm trying to shame Finesse's father about it and I'm not. Um I'm just noting it as a as something as a trend. And I think a trend, if I had to guess, that's rooted probably in a selflessness and a humility that most veterans try to embrace. There's a team first mentality. You don't want to talk about yourself necessarily, and unless you see somebody walking down a similar path to yourself. It's like why bring up what you did or what your military service consisted of. That said, um, who wouldn't benefit from that experiential wisdom? And I say this uh, so I say this not to shame, but rather to encourage veterans to find how to get make their voices heard and share the experiential wisdom that they have sweated and bled to acquire through their time in the military, in whatever medium that is. As sometimes it's not a matter of just sitting in front of the fireplace and telling no shit there I was stories. Sometimes it might just be look I'm not I, I can't talk about stuff or I don't think my stories are worthy of sharing. But I do paint, and whatever it is that you have is going to come out in that medium. Or you sculpt, or you do music, or you sing, or whatever. So anyway, that's just a plea for veterans to find. Uh, a refuge in art to unpack their military service because it is important that those experiences are somehow shared. And even if you're not trying to capture them, whatever the indelible Mark is from those experiences um, share it. And I think that can be done best through any number of artistic media. So um, that was my takeaway when Finesse and I talked about uh, her father's military service and what she knew of it. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting point worth talking about now. Um, trying to think if there's anything else you should know about uh, Finesia's work for you to fully enjoy this conversation. I think one thing that would probably help you is to know what the judges said about her play, Lucky that won third place in our inaugural full-length playwriting competition. She also, I should mention, also had a play called um, I Have No Confidence Any of This Will Work that placed fourth, almost placed in the top three of our 10-minute playwriting competition. So she almost finished third place in both of our competitions and considering each competition had whatever it was, 160, 190 submissions-ish, uh, that's incredible. Um, so clearly a talented writer. But let me read you what um, what the judges said about Lucky. They called it beguiling, moving, deeply satisfying, and genuinely original. Um, I'm trying. They, they, there's a kind of granular comment here, but I'll, I'll read it and then explain it. They said having the waiter, the waitress, writers, waitress slash writers' story come to life in front of our eyes turns out to be both enchanting and extremely credible. And that's the device that Finesia uses in the play: is to have of the waitress character who's sort of the lead um, be writing a story that then actually comes to life in front of you. Uh, The judges said, it's also a fresh look at Creole and Haitian cultures and how both have been affected by wartime. The pacing and dialogue are terrific. And the end of the play delivers a richly earned gut punch. So pretty high praise uh, for the play. I think gives you a good 360 degree view of the type of work. Vanessa is doing Okay, without any further ado, let's dive into the episode. I'm Christopher Palmer, I'm the Artistic Director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is The Savage Wonder of Vanessa Farrell. Phinesia, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: I am so glad we're finally able to connect. Uh, I, I, well, I guess let's start with this. Are you in Miami? Are you in Florida right now?
1: I am everywhere, Chris. So right now I'm in Connecticut working on a show. Um, <laughs> yes, with Throne Stone Theater. Yeah, I jump around, but um, I have a. I'm going to be making a major move in the fall, so I'm mm-hmm. excited about that.
0: What does that mean? Are you moving up north? Are you? Can I ask what the move is?
1: Yes. So I've been between Miami and New York for the past like six years, okay. and now I'm officially going to be bicoastal. Um, wow! Because I'm moving to Southern California. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes.
0: All right, and in LA. I'm assuming, or is it San Diego?
1: Well, really. It's San Diego, yeah, it's San Diego. Yes.
0: Are you okay? okay I'm just going to ask prying questions, so you can put up the firewall whenever you want. But are you going to be no, working so like good. the Old Globe or La Jolla? Are you working with oh! any of the theaters over there?
1: Yes, I'm with La Jolla, so I'm going to be um, getting my master's in playwriting at UCSD. No, this is not an um, intrusive question at all. In fact, if, if you know, I want people to keep up, and so. That um, if is, anyone's in San Diego,
0: I'm, you know. you're down for it. Listen, that's awesome. Congrats! Yeah. So you're getting you're getting your masters in playwriting. Yes. Okay,
1: I'm committing finally.
0: K- can I can I say this? And I'm I'm saying this like at the beginning of the conversation when you have plenty of time to refute what I'm about to say. But this is just my my knee jerk impulse when you tell me that that you're going to get your masters. Is that beneath you? I mean, seriously, like your plays are kick-ass. Like, like, what are you going there really to learn? Why? Why do you feel you need a master's at this point?
1: Wow, that's really sweet. I'm I'm honored to hear that. Well, I'll say this: I think that um, I didn't want to get my master's, not because I felt it was beneath me, but because um, I actually did major in theater in college. I majored mm-hmm. in urban planning.
2: Oh, or
1: okay. I should say urban studies. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm. I was really You know, I've always felt like I did theater in high school and a little bit in middle school and I felt like you can just do theater. You know, it doesn't have to be this big thing. You know, (laughs) you can just participate in the form. That being said, um, it is getting really competitive in the playwriting circuit. And um, what's great about UCSD, UT Austin and Yale is another great program. You get funding for three years. So they really see it as, yes, you're getting your master's, you're taking classes, you're being mentored, but it's really like a residency because you're being funded for three years to put on shows, get exposure. Yeah. So the the MFA's kind of change. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Is there a sense that, um, well, let me ask you, since you came from an urban studies background academically... What was the learning curve like for you getting into theater? Was there a a learning curve to go to understand not even just the history of theater, but maybe even the logistics of theater of like, oh, hey, in a rehearsal room, this is what I should expect, or this is what a dramaturg is for, or, you know, things like that. Was there a learning curve like that? Or did you feel like, yeah, there's a learning curve, but I got over it pretty quickly. It's not rocket science
2: yeah
1: I think there is a learning curve, but what I think is great is people want you in the room they want they want to explain it to you. I found theater really welcoming as a space, um particularly in New York um, and I felt as if whatever, most people actually have that learning curve. So people will go to college for four years for theater and undergrad and still not know how to navigate the professional space. Yes. Yet there are so many resources, workshops, master masterclasses, um, and people willing to meet with you. I mean, I love to do like just conversations with people and I'm willing to meet with anyone too. Um, so people are really open in this space, which I love.
0: What was the scariest thing you've done in theater so far? Was there? Did you have an oh shit moment? Was there a moment where you did, where you're like, eh, "I'm a little out of my depth here"? Was there? Have you had a moment like that, or has it always been? Has it been a natural progression?
1: Um, I feel like every time one of my plays goes up, I'm terrified. Um, I've never. Have like a full length play fully produced but I've done like festivals here and there and I've been nervous at every stage even for readings I'm terrified because <laughs> for me it's like okay that joke lands in my head is it gonna land with anyone else
2: you know <laughs> I'm
1: like I think that's hilarious but I think all kinds of things are funny <laughs> no one else would agree with so um it, it, it always, it always scares me, but I'm trying to think of one moment in particular. Um, give me one second so I can think of something.
0: No, you're good. You're good. I put you on the spot. Well, the
1: first thing that, yeah. no, no, you're good. I mean, that's the whole podcast.
0: <laughs> um,
1: I signed up for this. I think the thing that really, I'm like, oh no, i the thing that really threw me off, or I should say threw me off, the moment I, recently that I was terrified is um, I basically rewrote. I, I do this a lot, actually. I rewrote the play. Um, it was actually, I have no confidence any of this will work. We did, um, it was a part of a t- of Youngblood, the 10-minute brunch series. And I had originally written it one way where it was pretty straightforward. It was about their relationship. And then I made it, I changed it to surround her debating and kind of tracking the memories Mm -hmm. in that way. Mm -hmm. And so I was terrified because I'd been giving the actors new lines and they had to basically go off book um, within like less than 24 hours. And so that was really, really scary because you don't know. I mean, actors do this all the time they can they change your your language, and that does happen, and you do have to kind of let it go and trust the world and the characters and the relationships that you've built to carry the
2: story
0: How open are you as a playwright to your actor's input? Do you consider yourself do you actively welcome it if it happens, it just happens to be a nice coincidence? Are you rigidly against it what, what How do you feel with the actors'? latitude in your script
1: I think collaboration is really beautiful and it's one of the factors of theater that it's what makes theater the way it is I mean um I like Chekhov's work a little bit and in studying him and just looking him up I mean that's why I love being a theater artist in the digital age you can just research people
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. um I mean you could always do that but it's just so much faster he was this doctor who was writing plays in his free time and the group of actors who he would just have fun reading plays with, they would go over these plays over and over and over again. And he would take their input of like, this doesn't feel true to me as a character. Mm. Now I do think as a playwright, like a great playwright learns how to navigate feedback and they learn how to respond from a place that's true but true to yourself, but also true to humanity in general, like if you're trying to write to be in touch with humankind, like you're going to be able to find that balance. Because some actors, I mean, I've had experiences um, where actors make it about themselves and it has nothing to do with mm. um, the work itself. And you have to get good at, at balancing, but making sure everyone feels welcomed, because if it's an unwelcome space, I do believe actors will show that in their performance.
0: Yes. Yes, I agree. One of my favorite quotes about, uh, directing or creating a creative space was in Sidney Lumet's, uh, autobiography. He said he, um, he always tried to build an environment where there was a lot of jokes and concentration. And I always loved that. I was like, yes, jokes and concentration, like that, that tension, that dynamic. I love that. And, um, yeah, I think there's something very freeing about that. And that is a delicate balance to strike. When you, um, I want to ask about your plays specifically for a couple reasons, your plays, uh, at least the two that I've read, um, which, and for those listening, I mean, I know I'm, I, I'm talking about this in the intro and, and how great Lucky is, but I have no confidence any of this will work. Was Vanessa's play that finished fourth in our ten-minute playwriting uh, competition, and it was so she almost was a double double. She almost finished top three out of like hundred and ninety submissions in each category, which would have been insane. And uh, but that, let me ask you about that piece because that I think was the first piece of yours that I'd read. Was that part of a longer piece originally? No. Really?
1: But I think it no, but I think it should be. I think about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause there was so much depth with that. But and I I'm saying this for a couple of reasons. So being that both of those plays revolve around um Haitian Dominican relationships, when it comes to you you getting feedback from actors. There's got to be a high level of trust, or not just actors, anybody, whether it's a dramaturg, a director, anybody in the rehearsal space. There has to be a high level of trust because you're almost immediately talking about very specific cultures that you can't just you, you can't you can't just swap actors or directors or dramaturgs in and out and expect everybody to be as facile with those with with the, those subjects. So, how do you? has that, well, let me ask you first, has that been an adventure for you to find people that can execute those pieces to your satisfaction and find people that you trust to give feedback that you're like, yes, that's what I was missing. But you, that person had to have some understanding of those cultures in order to give you the feedback that you needed.
1: It's really interesting. I think with lucky. Yes, I was able to meet with pascal armand who's a great writer and actress and she gave me some really great feedback from her perspective as a haitian woman Um, and also the room in general for like a recent reading of lucky it was diverse in terms of there were puerto ricans there was someone who's mexican there's you know you have a wide range of people and I found that very helpful. I think you need both, you know um, you need responses from people who are so far gone and people who are very close to the culture, because then you can see um, the nuance mm, perspective yep. because sometimes people are, I mean, my mom, for example, she, she comes to see my place sometimes and she'll be like, I don't agree with this. or I don't agree with that. And it's actually helpful because you can see what the trigger is for someone. Right. I think like, if someone were to write about, um, <laughs> just trying to think of something inherently American, um,
2: hmm,
0: the revolution. You know,
1: you're going to have a million. Yeah, yeah, the revolution, right? From right. from the some Hamilton, for example. Some sure. people love Hamilton. Some people hate Hamilton. Um, and that's like helpful to see engage their responses. But I think that the universality of these pieces is like also incredibly important and I felt like with I have no confidence any of this will work they are Haitian they are Dominican but it's really a play about a girl and a boy
0: yes yes yep
1: and so the universality of that I I do believe that the more specific you are with an experience the more universal it'll feel for whatever reason I don't know no, why
0: it's it's <laughs> so true, true. What, wait, when you were just saying that this is where my brain goes I, I was thinking of Seinfeld which, you know, when it first went on air, what did NBC say? They're like, ah, it's too New York, it's too Jewy. And it's like, no, but that's the point. That's why it became so successful because it was so specific that there was a universality. And that's, I think, what your pieces have. They have a specificity that then you can appreciate the universality because there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of very specific nuance in those relationships, in that dynamic. I'm going to ask you a question because I really don't know. And I imagine you would know this better than I do. Have there been many plays about Haitian Dominican relations? Like, is that, is that a story that's, I don't know of anything that's ever been done in the theater space that I know of that's ever tried to capture that.
1: There's a cup. I think there are references, but I don't think there are any, there are any plays that are like, this is about Haiti-DR.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: And it's, it's tough. I mean, a lot of people don't want to go there because you're bringing up. It's still, it's still really rough. Of
0: course. Of course. I mean, I'm not going to lie. That was to me. That was just, just on paper. I was like, if this gal can't write one word, it's already a pretty sexy piece of work just on that alone. Cause I was like, nobody's writing about this. Like, that's so cool. It's so Mm -hmm. rare. You get undiscovered country. (laughs) <laughs> no pun intended, To uh, theatrically to, to mine and to look at. Um, but I want to ask you actually about the aesthetic of both of those pieces. They both, I don't know if you would describe it as this, so I want to bounce this description off you and see what you think. I was struck by what I would call a degree of surreality within each of them that you seem to be comfortable with, that you there's um, a looseness, uh, a kind of... Uh, What's the best way I can say this? I felt like each of them were very true to an emotion more than an emotion and a theme more than the nuts and bolts, the materiel of the environment. And that I think lent itself to a degree of surreality. And again, this is my terminology. Um, So let me ask you first do you agree with my terminology or would you phrase it a different way? And how intentional is that? Or is that just how you always conceive your stories?
1: Yeah, I I love that. And I think this might, you know, I think it's true. I, I wouldn't say, um, I mean, I would say if someone was like, this is like, a, a co- lucky is a comedy. I'd be like, well, maybe no, but you know, I don't like to tell yeah. people <laughs> how to, you know, process my work. I feel like it's it's art and you need you should experience it and your opinion is true of it you know I feel like I would tell Chekhov how I feel about his plays and he'd be like okay you know but I do feel like that's true um he would just be like mm-hmm. um I do I think what you're describing of the surreal is like it's so interesting when people say that there's like oh there's this It's surreal. Or some people describe it as magical realism. Or some Mm. people say there's this Mm. poeticism that kind of takes over the world. And for me, it's it's like that's how it comes out, but that's what's true to me. It's almost like Tennessee Williams.
2: Yeah,
1: his work was always clear to me, but but I think that the poetic, like the you know the people get pulled into the world and the poetics and the the beauty of that. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with that i think that's just because i'm the writer i see it as like this is how i view the world and like 100 that is how it's clear to me yeah
0: does that do you find that quality in all of your writing do you find that generally all your writing is going to have a degree of that
1: a little bit yeah there, i don't think i write i think most of my plays have a little bit of ma- like what some would describe under like magic
2: <laughs> uh
0: it was it was definitely a um it, this, this sounds so. I don't mean for it to sound this crass, but there was it, it was branded. Like reading your stuff, I was like, mm. "Oh yes, this is a finessia piece." Yep, got it. It like didn't surprise me. I was like, "Yep, of there's no doubt." that I was not under any. Uh, I, I never in the thought never crossed my mind that you plagiarized it from anybody else. I was like, "Yep, this is coming from the same brain." That's exactly right. Um, and it was. Um, I mean, well, let me let me tell you about my January. My January was spent reading whatever the hell it was, 190 plus uh, full-length plays and 190 plus 10-minute plays. My brain was fried, um, and so so yours really popped, and it was so refresh. And like I can say with absolute conviction, no one that I know is doing anything close to what you're doing. Subject matter, tone, aesthetic um, messaging, it was truly unique work. And it was, and I'm saying this because I was in a play reading stupor, um, to kind of be lulled into this dreamlike state where the scenes were just flowing one from the other. And there was this very lyric poetic, um, yeah, magic realism. It, It was, it was, um, a blissful ride until it wasn't until the punches come, and until the knives get twisted. And it, that was just perfect. It was just a tonally, I just loved um where that went. It was such a surprise. And um, and and the best surprise is ones that you're, you know, you haven't seen before, you haven't felt before. Where you're like, ah, yeah, didn't see that left hook coming. Yep. Okay. Um, and it was, it was uh, so it was a pleasure to read. So I'm saying all that. there's not even a question in it. I'm just it's, this is the, the luxury of being able to do this podcast is being able to talk to people whose work I liked and tell them how much I like their work. <laughs> so that's just, it just makes that's me so happy.
2: Flatter.
0: Well, it's true. It's no, true. Thank I, you. Well, I loved it. And and I, uh, let me ask about lucky. Um, Cause I think the, the first question I had, I think on putting it down was how much work had gone into it. Um, whether it was years or whether it was drafts or whether it was how many workshops it had been through, I thought the device, and I'm sure you've heard this before. And if you haven't, I will make sure you hear it now, but the device of having the waitress writing and then having the scenes play out, it was brilliantly done. And I know the judges responded to it. I certainly responded to it, but it's straight. That's, that's the kind of thing that strikes me as something that you find in a workshop or you find through multiple drafts or you find because you're really, really taking a scalpel to it. Um, Am I right or am I wrong? Or did it just naturally come out that way?
1: That is the the waitress writing the story was the first, was the first thing in the play. Wow. Um, So I, I started writing lucky. Like I had a fever dream of waitress. Like the first Mm. thing she comes out and she says like that scene with the waiter I woke up in the middle of the night and I just was like I don't know what this is okay I don't know what this is okay and then I put it away sometimes that happens to me I'll just I'll have something and I'll put it away and then um I had all these notes on my phone and I was like I need to go through them just poems I've been writing and I put them in the document and they started coming into scenes and characters, blue eyes, green eyes, all of these different people, lucky. I've been thinking about luck and what does it mean to be lucky. Um, I still don't oh. have an answer. Mm. Um, and That's a great
0: question, though.
1: Yeah, and then the play kind of bored. Yeah.
0: Um, is that how you generally conceive most of your plays? Is it an amalgamation of a bunch of different inspirations, or is it? do you find usually it comes from one very specific piece that is like, yep, uh, there's one idea or one character that is the genesis of everything else? Or is it, oh yeah, I take this and I can marry it with this and oh, this actually makes sense here also. Generally, how do you find yourself building your scripts?
1: Yes to all. I think every play is different. So I've written about three full lengths now. I have a new full length this year that I've been working on called r b um, and I've a bunch of 10 minute plays and each one was different. Um, some of the 10 minute plays came to me as I, th- I know what this play is. Like there are some plays I'm like, I know what this play is. I know what it's about. And then it changes, um, even lucky, you know, I've changed some things. Um, I've made major, major changes. Really? Um, yeah. and yeah. And but then I say like those are different plays. i I feel like I'm I'm still in the stage where I'm like th- there's draft twenty and then there's draft fifty and like those mm-hmm. are probably two different plays and both plays are valid and sometimes it it just means I need to write a different play because I'm I'm yeah. obsessing too much.
0: <laughs> are you? Yeah, am, so. am I wrong? Could the characters in I have no confidence any of this will work? Could they have been in Lucky? Could you have inserted them in Lucky?
1: I think, I think Waitress and um, Dea could be the same person.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think okay. they absolutely could be the same person. Or they could be sisters, or they could know each other in one world. Or Daniel could be somebody's, you know, it could be his uncle who was in, in the DR in Cuba who came. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Why, um, why are you drawn to it? Why are you drawn to that? And again, I'm basing this off those two plays. But why was Was it the socio geopolitical dynamic between the two that really drove you, and you were like, "I really need to tell a story about this. Was it something personal why why was that a magnet for your attention?
1: I think definitely being from Miami, it's really interesting. I mean, Miami's changed a lot in the last six years since I was full time living there um But moving outside of Miami, I realized how special and unique of a city it is, particularly Mm -hmm. for its, you know, immigrant history. Mm -hmm. You know, it's an immigrant run city. Um, And I mean, you could say that for all American cities, but a particular kind of immigrant from the Caribbean, from Latin America. Um, And that's really special. But when you're looking at people like me, I'm first generation um, Haitian American. A lot of us don't know our history or how it connects to us today and how we are moving through it today. So Lucky really was, you know, my love letter. I grew up reading a lot of gorgeous, Julia Alvarez, Dante Cat, all of these amazing books. It was a love letter to Haiti. It was a love letter to Haitian women. It was a love letter to, to Caribbean writing in general. And I think, I have no confidence any of this will work, I'm really interested in how all of these things we're talking about, right. Um, particularly consent, sexual assault. I didn't really grow up with people who look like me being at the center of those narratives. And I'm really interested because we are at the center of those narratives. Like we are impacted by these things, right. It's not just, you know, um, promising young woman, such a great movie. It's like, it's happening to her and then it's happening to the woman who looks like Viola Davis too. Let's do both of those movies, you know? Um, And so I think even if it's, even if my stories end up being universal, I I like choosing what's true to me. And I like trying to honor the people in my life through story. Um, Even if like, I have some crazy ideas that have like, Nothing to do with with Haiti or like the Caribbean in general, but I would probably lean into what I know and what the gifts that I have that make it unique, right? I mean, the glass menagerie did not necessarily have to take place in the South, but I do think it's a better mm-hmm. play because Tennessee Williams set yes. it there, yes. And that's how I I try to to navigate my own writing.
0: I'm going to go back to something you brought up before, um, just because I'm interested in. The execution of your plays because of that specificity, because of trying to capture the nuance of the Haiti DR dynamic Um, where you said, you know, there was a lot of diversity in the room. You have Puerto Ricans and Mexicans and all that. Um, I can see the value in having people that are true subject matter experts on the cultures. And I can see the value in having people that have no experience with the cultures that I can see the value in both perspectives. Here, let me, t- let me tell you my, this is where my head first goes. It drives me nuts to this day when I see Black Hawk Down, the movie, because uh, having spent a lot of time in East Africa, to see a bunch of West Africans being portrayed as Somalis grates on me. I notice it. I go that they're not East African. That's not Somalis. That's not how Somalis look. It's not how they act. That's not the dynamic. That's all West Africans. That's just wrong. And it it just chafes at me. Um, so I say that to say, when I'm looking, when I'm thinking of your piece, are there moments like that, that you have had, or that you've noticed where you're like, dude, I get you that you're being true to you, but in this piece, I don't need a Mexican. I need a Dominican. Like, you know, like I get it, like, but it close, isn't going to cut it here. There's, there's a nuance or there's something that's missing. Have you run into that? Is that, is that, has that been an issue? Do you think about it? I don't know. Just how does that strike you?
2: I think
1: sometimes, yes. I think also, I mean, this is like a side tangent. With movies like that and shows, they needed to hire a consultant. And the reason why it didn't look right is because they did not care. You know, I ask all the time or I think deeply about, am I being true? Is this working? But with theaters, sometimes I try to strike the balance of both asking myself those questions or putting myself in situations inviting right people. I think, um, if I'm having a reading or if I'm having an event, I actually have started to invite like nonprofits activists that I see on social media who are interested in these issues. Mm. And then Mm. they, I, I'm look forward to hearing their voices in the talk back. I think that's an easy way to do it of like being in community with the voices you try to serve on stage, Mm. like having it be holistic. um, Because if you're actually not in community with these orgs, like it's like if I only wrote plays about climate change and I didn't know any climate activists, that would be very weird. Um, Or I didn't, you know, have a relationship with anyone in that space. Mm. Um, I think that for some of my plays, it's it's a tough negotiation, actually, because sometimes... Like right now, I'm the play I'm doing, Rhythm and Belshaw, we're doing a reading this month. It takes place in Detroit. Um, it, you see two Haitian sisters. One's named Rhythm, one's named Belshaw. The father's African-American, the mother's Haitian. And this is true. There are lots of Haitians in Detroit. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of research. But it's really about, it's inspired by um, the R. Kelly debacle. And it's wow. kind of centering... The young singers, right, and it's trying to unpack how young, vulnerable girls of color, their relationship to R and B music, right, but center their perspectives. So there's a lot in the play, but right now for the reading, we're trying to cast, and they keep bringing me actors who are not Haitian and they speak Creole in the play, uh, and I have to. Now I have to make it a thing on my lists. Yeah. And you only get so many asks in business, in life. You pick your choose, your battle. So now I have to add that to my battles list.
0: Right. Right.
1: That's not fun.
0: No, it's not fun. It's understandable though. I mean, because you, I I get it. Like that's, it's, um, (laughs) it's all, that's always the issue. What hill are you going to die on? You know, picking and finding which those hills are and, and, and when and where to make that stand but but it is it is difficult because like if you're doing well I mean if you're doing like Tennessee Williams you can find a lot of people that can you know plausibly be in the south and and all that but when you're talking about the creole culture uh I mean that's very specific uh that's you know uh yeah that's a, that's a tough one to navigate what l- let me back up for a second I'm
1: sorry chris please i just
0: want to quickly say and even with i
1: mean that's the thing, though. I was talking to one of my Jean. She Jean might listen. Hey, Jean. Um, one of my good friends and, and artistic collaborators, Jean Lichty, We were talking about this with Tennessee Williams. There are actors who aren't able to take on the southern presence and that's aren't true. able to take on the that's
0: southern true.
1: Role. And people. Some people actually it's about being a good artist. Are you really looking to be specific in this world? If we're going to do Chekhov, if we're going to do Shakespeare, if we're going to yes. Some people cannot take on the iambic pentameter. That sure. is a specific to a place and time, and we all have it. We just have to be good artists. Yeah. But you know, people slack everywhere.
0: <laughs> no, listen, and and so. I am not one I mean I, let, let me let me be clear. I, I'm not one that I don't need verisimilitude in all casting. Like I get that there can be latitude and that often needs to be and there often should be. Um, It's just that with, uh, with your plays where that dynamic is front loaded and it is specific. And I think it's different if, if this is all, if we're all, if we're having this conversation, we're all in Haiti and we're surrounded by Haitian and Dominican actors okay, that's not much of a conversation. It's like, yeah, whatever. Well, let's find the best person. That's easy. But up here where you then do have to go, okay, well, wh- where are my Haitian and Dominicans in the casting call? And, 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 and to be fair, I think there's also a difference in performance versus a workshop. So like, if you really need the feedback, is the Mexican dude necessarily going to be able to give you as specific feedback as a Dominican might be even though the Mexican guy might be a better actor, let's say, and you might be like, ultimately I want to go with him for the role. You know, I think, I think there's different, it depends where you are maybe in the process also, right?
1: I think that's a really great point. Yes, I completely agree with that because there are ways around it, but people just have to make that effort. It's like they did not make that effort in the movies that you're referencing. Right. Of like the actor just learning the accent, the actor doing the research. And actors love to do that. Actors really like, that's part of their job. But in the workshop process, it might be better to be specific culturally. And if you don't have it in the actors, have it reflected in the audience you're inviting. Make sure that you have people there who reflect the experience so they can speak and say, I really resonated with this character. I didn't resonate with that. that and make sure it's a balanced room so you get a, you know, you get a full response.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I want to pull back to a kind of a 30,000 foot view for a second. Why the hell did you pick plays? Why did you pick theater? Especially coming from an urban studies background where you could have even had a whole different career. But when it being that you were going to get into the arts as presumably a writer, why theater?
1: Hmm. That's, that's a really good question. I I think theater was, you know, I was doing it in school, and then I actually wanted to become a stand-up comedian. So <laughs> actually, and reading my writing, you're like, "Uh huh, we are not at the goalpost." <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> you missed, kid. Um,
1: I, nope. <laughs> I. It was an accident. I mean, I I really was into comedy. Watch all the SNL episodes. I. Um, loved Sarah Silverman and I was obsessed with her for a long time and when I was about 15 my drama teacher signed me up for like this writing conference in Miami at City Theater Miami and I thought it was for screenwriting so I you have to submit I submitted a script about like vegan. It's like a vegan meme girl spoof, but about vegan girls being evil. I was vegan at the time, so it was like an inside joke um, and like hypocrisy of like a vegan girl whose dad like was a hunter. Anyway, it was like a team thing, and it was you know I was a part. I was one of the young people who was a part of the program, and that week I was reading plays. I was with the new playwrights. It was the City Theater Conference, and I. I fell in love with the live medium, but I was also inspired. I think um, France-Louise Benson, a great Haitian playwright, her play had won um, the award at the festival. And I I couldn't stay to see the play because I was living about two hours away. And so I would come in, take the bus during the day and then go back home. But the play was at night. So she reserved a ticket for me. She understood my family, right? This is like understanding different cultures. My family was not going to let me stay in Miami late at night. They thought that was crazy. So she got me a ticket. I met her. I went to see her play about very specification culture. I met her family, and I was I was completely floored and inspired. And I think because of her and because of that, that festival and the other great women, I mean, there were so many amazing people. Marsha Norman was there. Um, and I had just directed her play Nightmother in high school, so I was so inspired by her, and it was kind of like a celebrity sighting for me—dorky, <laughs> D- yeah. geeky theater kid stuff. Yeah. Um, and I just, yeah, I was, I was, I felt it was a particular moment, and I got really lucky. Um, I was, I kept writing plays after that. You know.
0: So was the community. It was kind of that community that just sucked you in. Yeah.
1: That is the best way to describe it. It was the community. It was seeing that I was inspired by so many different playwrights and different plays. And there was a call to action because now this has changed. But at the time, uh, most of the people who buy theater tickets are women, but most plays programmed are men. I think at the time it was like 80% of produced plays were by men. And so the, the, that particular year, the theme, they have City Theater Miami, they have this major 10-minute play festival. They bring in a different theme each year. That year it was gender parity. And that is the that is the soapbox I will never get off of, you know, um making sure we're all treated equally regardless of our gender and, and combating gendered violence. So um I was really excited um by that theme. So I yeah, I felt like I found my people.
0: Talk about that for a second, because obviously this comes up in your plays and it comes up talking to you what um and let let me let me stipulate it shouldn't take many people much effort to get worked up about gender violence but that said what's your particular interest why is that a theme with you why does that seem like that comes up over and over i
1: think the reason why it's interesting to me is it's not simply the gender violence because you know I think partially because I'm Haitian um, I grew up hearing things in my family, knowing things that the women in my family experienced this, just the, um, the normalization of violence that Mm. um, I've noticed like my mom and my aunts just that was really something that I think was difficult for me to understand because I think if you're the daughter of, if you're immigrant daughter or you're the daughter of immigrants, you're always trying to understand both cultures but that was something that was really tough for me to wrap my head my head around is the um devaluing of women and there's a beautiful Haitian quote about how if you don't respect and love women your country is going to go to hell um essentially is, is the is the short of it um and so it was knowing that that you know so much of my love for Haitian culture comes from the women of my family. Um, And the men of my family are great too, but, you know, like learning different recipes, like dancing with my grandma and just like all of those moments to know that such a beautiful culture that I love and keep dear to my heart is also entrenched in some, some deeply, um, deeply difficult attitudes towards women and, and and knowing that I'm interested in, in examining that and also like kind of seeing that in America too in very different ways. It's very, very different. Sure. But um knowing that like and also that was interesting because I would be interested in conversations surrounding gender here in America, but from that perspective of like we're not talking about how, for example, I'm trying to think of of an issue if you're looking at domestic violence in Miami, it's gonna look different from domestic violence in New York City. Yes. Because the, com- like, the issues are very different. We're not talking about, um, and everyone can experience domestic violence, but you have to also talk about immigration if you wanna talk about domestic violence in Miami, because those two things are linked. Um, if we wanna talk about, for example, I grew up on a farm My dad grows dragon fruit. I'd wake up every morning and I would see the buses come in of Haitian and Central American workers. And I learned that a lot of those women are being sexually exploited on a day to day basis. Those are, that's those having that upbringing that really made me interested in like issues of gender. And even if I'm not experiencing that as a woman, I need to, I need to be, on guard because or not even on guard but i need to be invested in this conversation because as soon as you forget i think that's when bad things happen yeah is when you distance yourself and that's and you stop caring about these issues
0: absolutely tell where was the farm that you grew up on
1: so it's in homestead it's near it's near the everglades some people would call it the redlands (laughs) yeah
0: Were, were you born there was that the form you were actually born so to?
1: I, yeah. So I technically, my family moved to Florida when I was like two weeks old. So technically okay. I can't say born and raised, but raised from an incredibly young age. Wow. <laughs> yeah.
0: Wow. And your dad, w- what did he do? He drove, you said he drove the fruit.
1: He grew, he grew, oh, he grew, he, oh, he grows grew, he okay. okay. um, yeah, I come from a long line of Haitian farmers on both sides.
0: And so what did you, what did you guys grow on your farm?
1: So my dad grew dragon fruit, avocados, um, what else did he grow? He grew a lot jackfruit, bre- breadfruit, pretty exotic fruits, stuff that you would find in Haiti. Okay. Um, he mostly grew mangoes. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. lots of exotic fruits. So Yeah. It wasn't a huge farm, it was a small
0: farm. Sure, 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 sure. Did you work the farm growing up?
1: A little. I like know how to ride a tractor. Um, (laughs) So my dad would let me do that because I wanted to. I found that really fun. Um, A little bit here and there. I would. Now, this is the thing. There were snakes. And Mm. so I had a snake encounter. And after the snake encounter, I wasn't going back outside. (laughs) No. Uh Uh-uh. So they're
0: pythons, oh yo oh, no, yeah, Florida snakes. No, forget about it. That that's that's uh that's a whole another level of, of hell. Um what I mean that's it's an interesting life, I think, to be raised on a farm for many reasons, but not the least of which is how your life played out. I you don't <laughs> hear of many writers that are on a that start <laughs> on a farm what was what was your earliest artistic influence was it coming from the women in your family was or where were you where did you get your exposure to culture
1: the library my mom would take me to the library all the time and i 'd read I was a i would just love to read i loved nancy drew i loved i mean i would get myself in trouble because i read through all the kid books and then i got tired so then i started reading Danielle steel novels but then i <laughs> i i found myself at one point being like this is too crazy for me so i put them back and just started rereading the kids stuff again
2: um yeah
0: that's hilarious So you were always, you were always captivated with literature. So the written word was always kind of front and form front in your, in your mind. Um, So actually, let me, I don't think I've asked this before. Your dad was the veteran, wasn't he? Who was the veteran? Yes. Is your dad. So how did that work? What, what, so, so what was, yeah. Tell me about that. Where was his service? What, how did that work?
1: So here's the thing. I don't know much about it because um, we don't talk much about it. It's so weird. I mean, he doesn't tell me much about his like what well, I found out on accident that like I came from a long line of Haitian He's a very quiet man. Um, but it's interesting. He's an example of like what you were saying earlier of like. People making assumptions about veterans and them leaving, living full lives mm-hmm. like I know he served, I think, for about eight years um after he immigrated to the United States because he met my mom um when she was he was 27 at the time he was I think he was finishing up um yeah he was 27 I'm doing the math um he was 27 at the time (laughs) and I think he joined when he was about 19 I could be wrong um but he mentions it mentions it every now and then, like, like yeah, he's very quiet. We don't, you know, he doesn't go into it. He's he's kind of like yeah.
0: Well, when would he have served? Would it, was it the Vietnam era? Was it just Cold War in general? When what years would that have been?
1: So he is now. I'm doing the math. My mom. Let me do the math. <laughs> Let's see. So I think in the 80s, maybe okay. the 90s. Wow. I think
0: the late 80s. So,
1: kind
0: of wrong. Um, So, this was all happening before you were born?
1: Yes, before I was born. So, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm not trying to age myself. But yeah. No,
0: no, no, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> that, uh, okay. So, wow. All right. So, yeah. This, and so then, <coughs> so then, what happens? Then they went back to Haiti and then had you and then came back over essentially.
1: No, so they met in Boston. They, they had met me in Boston. Boston. Oh,
0: okay. All right.
1: Yeah, I, which I believe is where he's because he didn't mention, oh, no, he did mention a little bit, because my mom helped me with the paperwork. Y'all, I know it sounds like I don't know the
2: situation. No, 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 right no.
0: I love I it. it. Yeah.
1: Because cause they, cause they did a background check, and I had to get the information from my mom, because I told mom, I was like, mom, that's not like a lie, right? He served. I right? was like, no, no, yeah, I'll send you everything you need. Um, and. I think because she mentioned something about Florida like so maybe he was in Florida at the time. He was either in Massachusetts or Florida. So wow. they met in Boston um and then he moved to they moved down to Florida and they they jumped around. They Miami was kind of the last stop when I was about 8 years old, but um yeah.
0: What I mean I mean let me just ask the obvious question. Um and I'm not this is said with no English on the spin, because um, I'm just interested. I know what it means to, well, I know what it means to me or would mean to a guy when it's like, oh, yeah, my dad was in the military. You know, It means something. What did it mean to you as this girl who's going and reading books and you're on the farm and your dad's kind of quiet? It's, and it seems just from hearing this, it seems like you were very influenced by the women in your life. But what, what did, did, how did, what was his influence? What was it, was there, you know, I mean, I'm sure there was an influence, but what was it, what was the nature of that relationship?
1: What I love about my dad is that he, one, he's, he's really, one, he's really smart and innovative, but he's very, um, and I don't know if this is related to his, his time in the military, but he. I learned a lot from him in many ways. So one of the main things is my dad is always listening to the radio, but he doesn't listen to simply one station. He'll switch between NPR. He'll he mm. listens to news stations, but he'll
2: switch.
1: Mm. And he did that when I was a young girl. And I would ask him, why are you listening to all of these stations? You need to understand every perspective. Mm. You just need mm. to have an understanding of every perspective.
2: Mm.
1: And I think that that was something I'm eternally grateful for. Um, He was a landlord for some time in little Haiti. And I remember that. Um, Mm. And he was very caring. Like there was like various, there was one woman who I could tell, like I'd overhear their conversations. She was struggling and he was more patient. Like (laughs) I know everyone's like, we need to get rid of landlords. My dad was a nice one.
2: Um,
1: (laughs) He was. um,
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then
1: with the farm, he kind of kept to his plants. He would talk, he talked to his plants more than he would talk to me, which I, I don't mean that in mm-hmm. like a sad way, but more so like that's like his thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, he was always like, he was always on the go. So I feel like he inspired me to kind of do whatever I want. So it does seem weird that like the daughter of a like Haitian <laughs> turned veteran turned farmer, would go into playwriting, but actually no, because um, I never felt like something was off and I never felt scared to talk to anyone mm. because of my dad too.
0: Mm.
1: That That's was something he taught me. Yeah. To what, never be afraid to talk to a person.
0: What does, um, what does he think of your career? What does he think of, of, of you writing and, and doing what you're doing?
1: Well, he's always telling me. At first, he was like, "Well, you know, maybe you should go to business school." He used to do that. He's like, "You know, maybe you should go to business school." You know, uh, maybe you should try. He's like, "Can you consider being a lawyer?" You're such. You argue with me so well. <laughs> maybe you should be a lawyer, because um, that's true. I am. If I if there's something I don't like, I'll make it known. Um, but. I don't know. I think now that I'm older, I think he's, he's kind of accepted it or he'll be like, I'm really happy about this thing mm. for you. Now he pitches me ideas. So, oh, so I think got that we're now.
0: that's good. That, that's a good oh, sign. God. And yet, and yet a certain kind of grueling. Yeah. Endeavor. Yes. What uh, oh, has God. he seen your reading? Has he seen your plays read out loud?
1: I don't know. I don't think I mean I think he like my mom watches sometimes I'll have something on Zoom and my mom will watch it. And I think he'll like look over her shoulder. He's so like this is the thing. He's a very quiet man. So and yeah. I I don't pry. Um, so I'm sure he's seen more than he lets on, is the thing.
0: <laughs> what does your mom think? You told us before like a little bit about her reaction, but what does your mom think of your career and of the pieces that she's seen? Does she hold back too, or does she let you know exactly what she thinks?
1: No, she will tell me her opinion. <laughs> and that's that's kind of why I think I keep it quiet with my dad, because I don't necessarily want to hear everyone's <laughs> opinion. I mean, I'll hear like someone on a talk back someone random. I'll I'll talk I'll hear an actor, a director, some right. in my own family. I'm like, yeah. please, let's not do this, you know. Um yeah. I love her though. She, she's super supportive. She comes to everything. She tries to read everything. Mm. Um, at first she was very much like, this is crazy, you know, cause I was really committed. I was doing theater, you know, even in high school, I was going by myself to Miami, trying to put up plays here and there. And then,
2: wow.
1: um, I got selected for this thing in California many years ago. And I was still in high school. My mom was like, there is no way I'm letting my daughter go across <laughs> the country by herself. What do you think this is? Once again, the Asian parent thing. And she was like, they were going to have to have you come with me. So she came with me to this theater thing. And she made friends with everybody. She had, such, she had a better time than me. She, she saw the play. And then after the play, she, she stopped and she looked at me. And she was like, I think you need to keep doing this. She's like, I think this is your thing. And I think you're really good at it. Um, oh, I don't want to cry talking about it. But, you know, I, I do have days where I'm like, maybe I should have just gone into urban planning and I should work for Amazon. And she's like, no, I think you have something special. Like, she really encourages me.
0: That, I mean, is there any way that could not have meant a lot? I mean, was that kind of an inflection point when she said that, that it was like the validation that you needed? Yeah. To push forward. I, that doesn't there's no
1: going back.
0: <laughs> can you talk for a second just because I, I I think it's something that you're perfectly situated to address for one thing because it's in your play. But I'm thinking of Lucky and of the mother character in Lucky and how central she is to the story. What is what does an island mother mean? What is what is so important? What is the what's the wisdom? That is important for people to understand to fully appreciate.
1: It's something my mom would say to me all the time, and I think so many different mothers. I'm sure there are like Irish immigrant mothers or American mothers in California who are saying to their kids, "Of, I I did the best I could. I did I didn't know everything, but I want you to have better than what I have." And so that's there's this thing in Haiti of a lot of women giving their children to what giving their children up yeah. particularly in the adoption circuit because they think their child is going to have a better life right and rather than placing assumptions or demeaning people that's actually really universal my mother who's not in that situation said the same thing to me i didn't know everything but i wanted you to have as much as i could so the intent is always to whether it's telling you that that skirt is too short or I don't want you to do that play thing in Miami because it's too late at night or, uh, you know, this, I'm telling you this because I want you to have something better than what I had. And on top of that, just having like, my mother has had lived like nine lives. (laughs) Like I talked to her and I'm like, what? That is crazy, mom. Um, You know? And so, I think that's also part of why I'm a writer because both of my parents, my mom's less quiet than my dad, but I feel like they're not like good morning. Here's our family history. Mm-hmm. I've kind of had to pry and ask questions. So then I just do the research on my own. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> You're not going to tell yeah. me. You
0: know? Have you been back to Haiti? Have you ever gone to Haiti? <laughs>
1: yeah. When I was the last time I was there, I was about 10 years old, but after um, the earthquake.
0: I haven't been back, to be honest with you. What was, um, what do you remember about, what was your takeaway from your trip to Haiti? Because I imagine, uh, I'm guessing that that's probably a well you keep going to in some way, shape or form, right? Mm. Just-
1: the image I can't get out of my head. I don't know why. Is when we were landing, we stopped for a moment, and right before we were landing, the hospital. I don't think the hospital's still there because I think the earthquake. They had to redo the hospital. Mm-hmm. Big white and a huge red cross that you could see from the sky. Oh, like kind of, it was just. I don't know why. <laughs> I can't take that image out of my mind. Um. Mm-hmm. But it, that, that image stays with me of like, almost, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. Um,
0: That's yeah. interesting. How did you, do you remember how you felt being in Haiti? I'm just wondering, because I think so many, so much of what I'm hearing is um, the immigrant story. And to, to mm-hmm. you know, going back to Haiti, do you remember how you felt? Did you feel? I don't know the best way to put this. Did you feel like you were home or did you feel like you were a stranger in a strange land or did you feel like um, a kinship, but there's kind of a thin piece of plexiglass separating you from everybody else? Like, how did you feel? You know, what was the, what was the emotional impact of being there?
1: I remember being happy because my mom was happy. Like she Mm. was, she was just having such a good time and just kind of feeling that through her. I mean, I thought, it was beautiful. And I I also thought it was sad at moments. I mean you you you're a young girl and you're looking at other young girls and you know that situation is is um that was that was tough. Um then I mean it was also as beautiful. I, I mean that is the truth of it. it's as beautiful as it is, you know, um complicated and I, I definitely do feel different. My experience is different from, you know, I'm Haitian American. Um, I'm both of those things at once. Um, probably more American than Haitian, sure. I would say. Sure, of course. Yeah. Grew up here culturally, um, and I do feel different. But I feel, yeah, I, it, I feel like. Um, Yeah, I feel like I'm coming. It it, it feels like going to my grandma's house is the best way to describe Mm. it. It's like, this isn't my house, but it is my house at the Mm same time. (laughs) Yeah. That makes any sense.
0: That does make sense. That does make sense. Yeah, absolutely. What's next for you? So obviously going to college, going to your master's degree, working on all this this stuff, I I guess, where does what do you want to see happen? I mean, I'm assuming at this point, There's no going back. I mean, you're you're theater or die at this point, right? So, is it trying to get? Is it just trying to birth as many of these plays as possible and get them to the right homes and get them out there and staged? What do you? What's what's your mustache twirling evil plan at this point? Like, what's the next steps of how you can of where you want you see your work go and how you want to see it um, framed and staged and all the rest of it?
1: I definitely want to continue writing plays that are resonant and that i think add to the conversation as opposed to you know you can write a million plays but each play i write I'm, i do think about is this sparking something new in, in the in the conversation of all the plays
2: mm-hmm.
1: um that i've been reading or that i love um, i would love to see my work up on its feet like fully produced and find the right homes for that and i want to continue just across America, I love New York, um, but my goal is to have my work done in various homes. I have a workshop of my play, Black Girl Joy in Chicago this, this summer. So I'm hoping that um, I'm hoping that, that leads to, um, and there was an amazing workshop with FM Productions in New York. So it'd be um, incredible um, to see that happen um, in New York, and also to have it happen in Chicago, maybe Miami. Lucky is the play that I hope I've been holding on to. I want it to happen, but I'm taking my time with that script because it's, it feels bigger than me in a way, that play. So I'm, I'm taking my time and I know the right, the right home will come for it. The right time.
0: Why do you think that is? Do you think the play is done? Do you think it's, I mean, I know you said you're still making changes and edits to it. Do you think there's a lot more still to mine in that story? Where, where, where are you at with it in your mind?
1: I think there's a little bit more to mine, but I also think that plays come to places at the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, I am interested in finding the right homes, but but rather through an authentic process of like, I am connecting with it, you know, kind of like the La Femme workshop with Black Girl Joy. I had a relationship with Jean Lifty, the producer, in a really organic way. And then she just so happened to, to love my play. And I think that kind of following that organic path is, is what I'm trying to do.
0: So you mean so as opposed to going out and pitching it? Yeah, rather than pitching it all over the place. The right people are going to find it, appreciate it, and be able to run with it.
1: Yes, I think so. Yeah. I mean, if it doesn't happen in like five years, then I'm going to have to start pitching it. But I think <laughs> I think taking that
2: approach,
0: yeah, is it, Can't wait you, forever, y'all. I uh, know, right? Is that kind of your? Do you? It sounds like it's almost your crown jewel at this point. Is that a safe way to describe it?
1: Hmm. it's my first. It's my first full length play, so I think it's the one I'm the most sensitive about.
0: Hmm. Is it your most, hey, this is, I, I'm just kind of throwing this out here. Would you describe it as your most personal play or your least personal play? I mean, do you see, is it something that you really see yourself <coughs> in or is it because it, I, off uh, the top of my head, it doesn't seem like you as the playwright have an avatar in the play, but I don't know.
1: I mm. mean, I definitely think it's gotten more personal because I've been leaning into a waitress a little bit more and her experience. Mm. Um and, you know, waitress is a writer who's Haitian American writing a yeah. story. Yeah. I'm Haitian American writing a story. There's only so many degrees of separation between me <laughs> the-
0: <laughs> That's true. That's fair. Yeah. That makes that I can see that. Do you think is it more do you find yourself inserting yourself into your plays more obviously than in lucky usually or less so
1: less so I definitely think that there's more it's like I don't feel I think you're right it is more personal I don't feel as vulnerable in my two other full-length plays Black Crow Joy and RB
0: mm. at all how much how much it- Is uh, the development of Lucky down to also having the right cast? Like if you found the right cast, would you go, hey, you know something, this is worth, you know, pitching. Like I can invite people like, like, how important is that as an ingredient for you to feel like it's ready to take the next steps?
1: I I think that's huge. I think the right cast and the right director is essential. I think if you have the right director, there's no point in waiting. Um, I think that if you, <laughs> cause I do, I do think the play could be done tomorrow. It could be produced tomorrow. There's, I'm mm. not trying to d- dimmer the play. That being said, there's a little bit more that I want to do with it, but I'm putting a timer on it so that I can, you know, let it go. But I think, I also think the perfect cast comes with being on the ball and watching like I watch a lot of shows. I'm I'm constantly, you know, mm. um just being in community, I think it's is gonna help you create yeah. that as perfect as can be team. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Finesse, it's been a long time coming. I this has been so awesome. I I can't tell you um Days like this make me really happy. It's just a blast to be able to sit down and kind of fanboy for a minute. Um, again, it's a it's a great piece of work. And I just, um, I, I, to be able to talk about it. And I hope, uh, you know, I, I, I'm i kind of reminding myself that it's a podcast and other people are going to listen. So for everybody listening, I will try in the intro to tell as many relevant details without spoiling anything as I can about Lucky. So you can appreciate what Vanessa and I talk about during the show and kind of, you know, not feel like this is totally inside baseball and you have no idea what we're talking about or any of the crucial details to understand and appreciate it. But this has been awesome for me. And I really enjoyed the shit out of this. So thank you for taking this time and talking. Thank you.
1: so much. Hey, thank but, you. This was amazing. And thank you.
0: Can we do this again? Can we talk again at some point in the yes! near future? I would what? love to, I would love to say, yes! I mean, I'd love to talk and just see how things are going.
1: I would love that. And I'd love to connect with anybody. I also want to say, you know, what you're doing is incredible. This, this definitely is going to help Lucky in terms of its development, knowing that it got a prize. Hey, that's going to help so much. And also just supporting living writers. Thank you so much for doing that because so many people support the dead guys. And I love the dead guys. I talk about them a lot during the podcast, but people who are living, deserve to be read. And so thank you for reading all 190 of those plays and, and giving those writers, you know, <laughs> you know, we do these things alone. And so it's nice to know somebody who kind yeah. of reads.
0: <laughs> well it it's it is nice. I mean that's the that's the secondary benefit of this for me is is kind of folding you into a larger family. And um and I I love that you're part of it. So um it meant a lot and it certainly has added uh, an, an awfully awesome dimension to our, comp- our initial competition. So, listen, it's been great. Yay! Let's do this. Let's do this again soon, okay?
1: Perfect. I'll talk to you soon.
0: Bye, Finesia. That was the Savage Wonder of Finesia Farrell. Pretty cool. Really, really cool stuff. I can't wait uh, to see what Finesia comes up with in the future. That will be exciting. She is absolutely a playwright to keep an eye out for. Okay, for vet rep, we have a bunch of stuff going on, most of which is not ready for me to talk about. So without much further ado, um I will wrap up this episode. I will just say if you want to know more about Veterans Repertory Theater, go check us out at vetrep.org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P.org. Vetrep.org. You will see all of our lines of effort. By all means sign up for our mailing list, which doubles as a literary blog. Um, Keep listening to these podcasts. If you're listening to us on iTunes, we would love your five-star review. Uh, We will have right loud events on Instagram live and the parlor uh, will be coming up in. I can't remember when this episode is going to drop. So I don't know if we're remember if it's August or July, Uh, but regardless there's shows at the parlor, but not in August. Uh, So if you're listening to this in August, don't worry. The shows are coming back in September with uh, Joshua Harmon's, 2018 drama desk winning play admissions which will be awesome okay guys that's all i have for you i'm christopher paul meyer on behalf of the veterans repertory theater see you next time and we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all